a couple of episodes back, I was thinking about this question of whether Australia should or even could have a second ever poet laureate. And this is prompted by an article that I read in the monthly written by today's guest, Sarah Holland-Batt. Sarah is a poet herself. She's a critic. She's an editor. And that's a very quick way of encapsulating just a huge list of achievements. Sarah Hollenbart was a Fulbright Scholar at NYU where she got her MFA. She's won the Thomas Shapcott, the PM's Literary Award. She's been published in Poetry, The New Yorker. She edited for Ireland. And she edited the last two Best Australian Poems put out by Black Ink. If I were to sit here and list everything that she's achieved, it would go on for as long as this interview does. And as I say to Sarah in this chat, I think she might be one of those people who just has more hours in the day than the rest of us. Obviously, it took a little while to find time to sit down and talk with Sarah, but I'm so, so glad that I did. It's one of the joys of making this show that I get to meet people who I've only known through their sometimes incredibly impressive bios. And if you've been listening to the show for a while, you know what I'm like. You know that a bio like that, it's going to make me feel defensive. I'm going to take it personally. That's just my brand of crazy. There's no getting around it. That's just what happens in my head. And add to all that the fact that Sarah's book, Aria, her first book, was also one of the first books of poetry that I ever bought when it came out back in 2008. And then I realized that she and I were exactly the same age. And I started a horrendous game of comparison with myself. And thinking about it, it's truly as if I expected all the achievements that I've just mentioned to somehow be bestowed upon me, even though I have made absolutely zero effort to achieve them. (laughs) Just completely insane. Anyway, I read Sarah's latest collection, which is called The Jaguar, and I had a strange and beautiful experience with it. This is one of the first books of poetry that I've read in years that I would I would put it down after I'd read a few poems and then sort of walk into another room and then think, I'm just going to go back to that book, actually. I want to pick it up again. That doesn't usually happen for me with poetry. It It will occasionally happen with really good works of fiction that really suck me in. But with poetry, it just requires a bit more effort, a bit more intention, usually. But that wasn't the case with the Jaguar. I just I just wanted to keep reading it. And maybe it's it's even more strange because the subject matter, especially in the first half of the book, is pretty challenging. Sarah's talking about her dad's experience of Parkinson's and dementia. It's a book about grief. It does move from there into quite a different mode, and there are a lot of poems that are all about pleasure and excess, which are very, very fun to read. But all of them, I just wanted to keep going back to it because the work was so good. And there's something really pleasurable about reading the work of someone who just straight up knows what she's doing. So we talk about the book, we talk about that latest collection, and we talk about her other book that's come out recently, which is called Fishing for Lightning. And that's a collection of the weekly columns that Sarah put together for the Weekend Australian. 
each week she introduces readers to a different poet and a different mode of Australian poetry. So they've all been brought together in that book. We talk about what it was like to edit those two Best Australian anthologies. And I do get to ask her about this Poet Laureate question. What is the Poet Laureate going to do? Like I say towards the end, I wish I had another hour again uh, to keep talking with Sarah. I, she was just a delight. To get into it, though, I'm going to read you part of a poem by our very first Australian and, and only Australian Poet Laureate. I found this little monograph in Fully Booked uh, up in Thornbury, one of Melbourne's best secondhand bookshops, um, The Odes of Michael Massey Robinson, First Poet Laureate of Australia, 1754 to 1826. And I'm going to read to you from the ode for the Queen's birthday, 1813. I'm just going to read the last stanza because honestly, I mean, even that's probably going to test your patience. Here we go. These are thy trophies, time, and they shall raise a lasting monument to Britain's praise, and history's faithful page shall fondly dwell, and future bards in strains sublimer tell, that truth and loyalty by wisdom led, bade Australasia raise her drooping head, gave to the people's wish a chief approved, a man they honoured, and a friend they loved. I don't get it, but the, it's for the Queen's birthday. <laughs> why? 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 Is it about a man they loved? These, thing, these things are truly unreadable. I'm, I'm not even going to try to figure that out. Uh, please enjoy <laughs> this conversation with Sarah Hollenbatt. I'm going to begin by showing you this. This is a little find that I picked up in fully booked Thornbury. Excellent. The Odes of Michael Massey Robinson. <laughs> and uh, Unbelievable how are the odes? Are they? Uh, they're um, utterly, utterly terrible. Yeah. They're, they're so bad. Um, That's what you get when you pay poets and cows, I guess. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, but to set it up, you wrote in the monthly's culture issue a month or so back that it's about time that we had a second ever poet laureate for Australia. Hopefully they will be paid in something more than cows. And in the article, you talked about some of the things that that person could actually do for poetry in Australia. I really want to draw you out here on what you actually see their day-to-day -day activities as, as being, what would they do in their year as the laureate well i think first of all for anyone to achieve anything they'd need more than a year and i think you know the idea of having a multi-year term um, and leaving the remit really in the hands of the laureate themselves i mean when you look at what the poets laureate in america have done they've all done very different things joseph brodsky did this amazing campaign of trying to get poetry into hotels and train stations and airports um, you know, other poets have done outreach activities, going to rural and regional areas, meeting with people, sharing poetry with them, encouraging them to write and read it. Um, I think it can be it can be fairly open, and I think it's one of those roles where 
inherent in the appointment is would be a degree of trust in the individual that they'd you know um, have their own plans for, for that role and pursue that in their own way so in that sense it's hard for me to answer you know what what would a poet laureate do um, because we see so many varied kind of exemplars of what they do do um, but I tend to think that broadly speaking um, that role should be about creating readers for poetry. And I think when I look at the structures that exist in Australia, we have a lot of um, good organisations involved in encouraging people to write poetry, um, encouraging emerging poets. Those structures exist. Um, we don't perhaps have quite the same uh, capacity to create readers of poetry. There's not perhaps the same emphasis placed in that. And that's in order to, I suppose, address um, the station of poetry in Australia, which everyone kind of laments as being lowly and not being read and not being venerated, not being valued, um, I would like to see, you know, I think a laureate's not going to solve everything. A laureate's one individual, but who may have through the power of their passion, through their charisma, through their poetry, through their knowledge and love for the work of other poets, some capacity to engage with the public in a way that organisations can't. And I think a lot of organisations have a presumed and kind of circumscribed audience. You know, there's there's a there's a certain group of people who will attend events. I'm plucking, you know, an organisation out of the air here, but say at the Wheeler Centre, you know, and then there are other people who probably wouldn't go there, not for any reason that's negative about the Wheeler Centre, but just, you know, organisations tend to create fairly defined, you know, and regular audiences. And I think the thing about a poet laureate is depending on where they go, they might go somewhere where poetry opportunities have never been seen before. Um, and I think you look at the kind of, I suppose, media interest and, co and coverage um, in the activities of poets laureates overseas. It's a role that, that sort of, I suppose, has an inherent degree of interest in it um, and an inherent autonomy from structures, you know, um, you know, organisations that otherwise promote poetry. Um, I think there's a lot of value in that for, for whatever it would cost. You know, I think there's the capacity to actually reach people who may not otherwise uh, engage with poetry. I'm thinking of, uh, this is a long answer to a short question, but I'm thinking of, you know, Simon Armitage in the UK. Not all, not all poets laureate um, write occasional poems, but some do. And Simon Armitage has been interesting because he has written poems for particular occasions, you know, kind of wrote, wrote one very recently about the death of Queen Elizabeth. Um, and those kinds of, I suppose, inflection points are opportunities for people who are just reading the news or just, you know, not in a poetry domain at all, not in a literary domain, but the poems of the Poet Laureate, if they choose to write them, can enter into a more general public domain. Um, and so I, I think it has a, a good capacity to create new audiences that that don't exist. So that that's, I suppose, the the primary argument that I can I can see for it and the way I would distinguish a poet laureate's activities from organisations that are already, you know, effectively engaged in promoting poetry and promoting the work of poets and encouraging people to write it. That's so different to the angle from which I was approaching it because I was thinking it from a very, like, poet-centric angle. And what I was stuck on was how do you convince the person who's been asked to be the Poet Laureate to actually do the job because famously, you know, Les Murray said, oh, if they ask me to do it, I'm going to say no. 
And uh, when I was talking about this a couple of episodes ago, I sort of was trying to make the case that we don't love uh, artistic success in Australia. And my thought is that there would be a number of people you'd have to go through before you got to somebody who would actually say, okay, I'm going to actually step into that limelight, into the spotlight. That might be the case, you know, that, that might be the case. I know that Les, I mean, that, that's been that's been a little anecdote that circulated about Les that he would have said no and potentially would have said no about the Australian laureateship. But the speculation where he made his initial remarks about it were that he was actually up potentially for the laureate of the UK. Oh, okay. Been, so it's been a bit that, mangled. That he'd been in, there'd been some gossip scuttlebutt that you know potentially les was on the shortlist to be the the uk poet laureate and he had said he didn't see the queen as his head of state and so he'd have to say no and i mean potentially there are further remarks beyond that that's the that's the originary remark um around which this sort of thing has has grown this idea now potentially he would have said no in australia as well Arguably, there was a point where for him it would have been redundant because, you know, he did have such a large audience for his work already and such a presence um, that, you know, potentially he would have preferred to be, as people called him, unofficial, you know, anyway. And he was a contrarian individual in a number of ways. And so perhaps that wouldn't have worked, wouldn't have been a good fit. Um, But I think that question of, you know, Australia being resentful of success or that person receiving criticism or so forth, I mean, Yes, but that but should that should that should that stop a role that might actually create readers for poetry that might actually do something to shift the way that poetry is received? Um, I, I don't think so. I mean, inherently, not everyone's going to want to do it, you know, and that's that's fine. Not everyone has to do it, um, but I think you know I can see so much potential, and I can see in Australia, I suppose, comparing the station of poetry in the US comparing its, you know, the the position it has in the UK with the way we talk about poetry in Australia and the way that poetry is broadly perceived. I think it I think it would do an enormous amount with relatively little outlay and effort to to help enhance the reputation of poetry in this country. I mean, we have such amazing work being produced and we have an incredible history, you know, library of poetry. Um, and yet, you know, we seem to be ensconced in this endless conversation of, you know, why isn't poetry taken more seriously? Why is poetry ignored? You know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, there'd be some give and take. There'd be some people who do it differently than others. Um, that's good. That's healthy. There'd be people who disagree with the choice and disagree with the poet, with the poet laureate intends to do. That's also good. I think these roles are um, useful points to consider questions of value, literary merit, or whatever you want to call it, um, you know, they're negotiation points for what poetry is. They're not definitive statements for, about what it is. I don't think anyone looks at Simon Armitage as the UK Poet Laureate and says, oh, well, that's what that's the only thing that poetry in the UK is today, you know. Um, what I do like about what Simon has done in that role and also when he was giving the Oxford Lectures on Poetry, he's he's taken the opportunity to highlight the work of others and I think that's a fairly common thread. I don't, I can't really think of a laureate in recent years who's only focused on themselves. I think it is a role of advocacy for the art form um, and for literature, you know, and um, I can see great 
opportunity for Australian poetry to have more of a presence overseas with a poet laureate, with a figure like that being invited. You know, Australian poetry has a very limited presence in UK poetry and in US poetry, which is quite surprising given the calibre of what poets produce here, you know, and the commonalities in, in the forms and interests that cut across those traditions. Um, so I can see there would be a really good value for it. Um, but of course, you know, I also understand the criticisms and the scepticism and, you know, I, I get it. It's none of these roles are perfect, um, you know, but they, but, but it might be a step, a different step than the steps we've been taking, you know, which is ultimately to channel most of the activity. I think, you know, the limited amount of funding that there is towards the writing and publishing of poetry, which is very, very important. But what about the reading of it? That would be my, my question. Mm. Yeah, like I say, it's just a totally different tack than I was taking. My thought was if we're going to have one, maybe we could have three at the same time, make a little team. A trio of laureates. A trio uh, of laureates. You know, I think I think if you had someone for about, my, my ideal term I reckon would be about three, three years, three yeah, to five years. Yeah, that sounds right, yeah. In which someone could get something done. I love the idea of the the poet laureate that they have in the US where they're, they're formally, you know, an assistant or advisor to the Library of Congress. And so in the US the poets laureate advise the Library of Congress on their poetry acquisitions, on their poetry collection. Um, and so, you know, I think there's, enormous value in that um, to do that effectively and to have outreach and you know in the US they also can renew their term so they have a shorter term than the UK they can renew their term in in the US if they choose to and most of them do um, do more than one term um, but you know it could it could vary depending on what the, the poet's stage of their career the capacity they have to contribute to it um, I'd love to see the limelight shone on so many of the poets that I admire, you know, um, you know, who who are contemporary, who would bring, I know, very different kind of approaches to it. I think it's worth it's worth a go, you know, rather than deciding that it wouldn't do anything or that it wouldn't change anything. I think it's it's an opportune moment in which, you know, after after a long time in the wilderness, there's some interest in um in reshaping our arts policy. And I know the arts minister, the federal arts minister, um, had until recently, I'm not sure if it's still there in his Twitter bio, that he was a lover of poetry, which is, you know, um, certainly a change in the air. So, yes. <laughs> you know, um, I, I just think uh, it would be a really great time to seize the day and do something a little bit different than what we've been doing. And, you know, maybe that might be abandoning a little bit of the scepticism that, you know, Australians and, the, you know, the ironic sense of the futility of the enterprise that that's a very Australian characteristic, you know, um, yeah, yeah. in favour for some hope for, for change in poetry. <laughs> yeah. No, I appreciate the corrective. My um, My thoughts on it were immediate skepticism so it's good it's good that you brought me back um changing tack a little i really want to ask you about editing black ink's best australian poems which i know you did a number of times including the last volume which came out in 2017 i recently spoke to a poet who is editing an anthology and uh, she said that her admonition to herself was the one thing I told myself was that I would never edit an anthology. And I wonder, um, I know that Fishing for Lightning is anthologistic in a way, 
but I wonder looking back on that experience of editing those volumes of Best Australian, um, is it something you'd ever do again? I mean, yes, I enjoyed it. Um, I read every poem published in the country in, in those two years. I know editors have had different approaches to it and, um, you know, Black Ink itself opened those anthologies out to a call for submissions, um, which I read. I read the submitted poems, but I also then read uh, or looked through at least all of the books of poetry that had been published, the, the individual volumes that had been published in that year and all of the newspaper publications and all of the um, journal publications, magazine publications, website publications and so forth. So I had, you know, not every editor did that. In fact, I might be the only one who did. I'm not sure. Um, I'm kind of a completionist and um, I was interested. It was it was genuinely interesting. There were poets whose work, by that stage I already was an editor and so as a magazine, you know, I was edited for Ireland and various other things and so you know, you, you're familiar with most of the poets who are publishing most of the time, either through your reading of individual volumes or through the, the poems that come across your desk. But then there are some poets who haven't published for a long time and then publish a poem or two. I, I sort of thought it was important to do that work of reading so that I could say hand on heart whether anyone else liked my selection or agreed with it or not, that those were the poems that, that had stayed with me and they were. Um, so for me, I saw it I mean, the the personal and private benefit of it was that it was an education in contemporary poetry to do that, um, and then and then it was very pleasurable for me to put together the combinations of poem poems to to think about how poems spoke to one another, to think about um, you know the the themes that emerged from the that body of work. Um, there were tricky times. I mean, the hardest part is actually narrowing it down from about 120 to 100. Um, you know, it's not it's not actually getting to close to what you needed, but there was sort of quite a fixed number that I could include. And so that was tricky. And then there were, of course, poets who you would love to publish but just hadn't had a poem in that year, um, you know, or, or poets who you gen genuinely and generally admired but hadn't you hadn't loved the particular poems. It's It's... It's tricky, but it's um, so long as you don't think about, so long as you just think about the poems themselves and try and tune out the rest of the noise of is this going to make people happy or unhappy, you know, am I going to lose friends over this? You can't think like that really if you're an editor. You've got to be able to stand behind the poems that you've chosen. That's that's the fundamental baseline of editing, you know, is that um, unfortunately, if the poem is by your best friend and you don't think it's a strong poem, it mustn't go in the anthology. Um, and that's that's kind of how I approached it. So potentially there were people who were might may have been surprised that I selected their work, you know, and others who may have been disappointed. But um, it is what it is. And I really enjoyed it. I loved it. I mean, I understand the scepticism and probably share a little bit of it myself about claims to best. But again, exactly like a laureate, those anthologies are sort of a moment of reflection, contemplation of the state of the field. People can argue about them. People can dislike them, um, you know, but I think on the positive side, on the flip side, um, certainly when I was a young poet, I, I, you know, I was so thrilled when my work was first included in an anthology like that. I actually think it may have been either David Brooks or Peter Rose through UQP's um, previous series, not the Black Ink one, and I remember thinking, you know, being being 
utterly thrilled to, to have a poem included in that because, you know, so many of my, the poets that I admired were in there. And for many poets, it's, you know, it's something that happens a handful of, time, handful of times in their career and is is very, very meaningful and um, something to be celebrated. And so, yeah, I don't know, I, you know, there's, there's always a cynical and ironic reading of those things, but then there's also you know, the kind of beautiful thing for, for someone who's a young poet whose work's never been in that forum before to make it into an anthology like that. And that was really exciting to be able to include some of those works as well. But, you know, on, on the other hand, of course, as you'd know, poetry is full of characters and um, and people who, you know, take these things extremely seriously and can get very cross about <laughs> them. And uh, there was a very long essay written about me in Quadrant um, in one of those years that I edited bemoaning all of my choices and, <laughs> uh, and kind of just generally questioning my uh, intellectual capacity for the task, <laughs> you know. Uh, you know, so you have to weather all of that. You, you've got to just you've just got to kind of go with it. It's That's part of the job. Um, you, you put out your selection for discussion, for argument, for, you know, robust opinion, um, and then you try and step away from it because they're not your poems, you know, they're just the poems that you liked over your reading. But, look, I, I loved it, to be honest. I enjoyed it. I didn't know about that quadrant essay. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But there's only so many hours in the day. I can't really recommend it to you as a red hot read. <laughs> <laughs> um, I suppose if nothing else, yeah, an education and like that that kind of thing would just have to strengthen your sense of your own judgment, I imagine. Yeah, and, you know, you yeah. question your taste because it's inherently a solo job. So you don't, I mean, I've noticed it's it's interesting actually a lot of anthologies of late seem to have two editors or even even special issues of literary journals seem to have two editors. And um, I was quite pleased to be doing it on my own because it was a wrestling with my own taste, judgment. You know, you reread poems over and over again, um, making sure, kind of testing them. And, um, yeah, it's, it, is, it is about honing your taste and about working out, you know, whether you can defend your choices to yourself. And, you know, one poem look, looked at in a certain light looks really good. And then you return to it a third time, and you think, ah, oh, mm, you know, is is it quite is it quite in this pack? And I enjoyed all of that sort of talking to myself and, and living with those poems. It was it was fun. I mean, I sound very positive about it now because I've had many years of not doing that volume of reading. <laughs> yeah, it's been a while. <laughs> It was a little bit crushing at the time, just the the sheer volume, um, but but also also enjoyable and also you know an education. I got a lot. I got a lot from it personally that may not be even reflected in the anthology itself. It's just it's good to do that reading to dip your toe into the you know the full pond of what's what's out there um, at a given time and get a sense of it. Mm. Yeah, I I get the sense looking at your work preparing for this interview that you might be one of those people for whom time works a little bit differently. <laughs> Interesting. What do you mean by that? Just that you've got more hours in the day than than the rest oh, of us do. Feels like I've got fewer actually. Uh, uh, I have a lot of questions for you about your new collection, the Jaguar, and also about fishing for lightning. So I'm going to move into that, and I'm wondering if you would be happy to read the title poem to get us into what this collection is. Sure. The Jaguar. It shone like an insect in the driveway, iridescent emerald, 
out-of-season Christmas beetle. Metallic flecks in the paint like riverbed tailings, squeaking doeskin seats. Bottle green, my father called it, or else forest. A folly he bought without test driving, vintage 1980XJ, a rebellion against his tremor. The sole bidder, he won the auction without trying, the day after the doctor told him to draw a line under his driving years. My mother didn't speak for weeks. It gleamed on the terracotta drive, wildcat forever lunging on the hood, predatory, the chrome snagging in the sun, ornament of my father's madness, miraculous and sleek, until he started to tinker, painted the leather seats with acrylic so they peeled and cracked, jacked the gear stick, hacked a hole into the dash with a Stanley knife, jury rigged the driver's seat so it sat so low you couldn't see over the dash. For months he drove it, even though my mother begged. He drove it as though he was punishing her, dangerously fast on the back roads, then opened up the engine on the highway, full throttle, even though he was going blind in one eye, even though my mother and I refused to get in. And for the first time in years, my father was happy. He was happy to be driving. He was happy my mother and I were miserable. Finally, his modifications killed it, the car he always wanted and waited so long to buy. And it sat like a carcass in the garage, like a headstone, like a coffin. But it's no symbol or metaphor. I can't make anything of it. Thank you. Um, you strike me as a relatively private person and reading this collection, I was wondering about how exposed you might feel, especially with the first section of the book. Does it feel like you're telling a lot, putting these poems out into the world? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think I am a relatively private person in my real life, but then in the world of the poem, you know, you have to give, that's where I, that's where I'm more comfortable giving it in a way, because the poem is to me an object that is somewhat outside myself. So these stories that, um, I mean, even the story of that car, I think a few close friends knew about it at the time, but it wasn't a story I went around telling everyone, just like my father's Parkinson's wasn't something that I was, you know, I see people posting this sort of stuff on Facebook and, um, you know, I just, it was, a, it was as far as I was concerned, you know, a kind of private um, devastating experience to kind of go through, but um, poetry or making something of it that is not necessarily totally autobiographical, not necessarily strictly, um, you know, reporting the events exactly as they happened, but they help shape experience into language for me, poems. And so that's the sort of means through which I'm more comfortable, I think, sharing those things. Once I feel like something has taken the shape of a poem, then I'm comfortable with it being out in the world. I think the idea of um, somehow emoting on social media or tweeting about it makes me feel sick. 
writing a poem about it that, you know, lots of people may then go on to read. I'm fine with that for some reason. So I'm not sure what that is. It just, it seems in my mind, the act of um, writing the poem makes it an object that's separate somehow, you know, that exists slightly outside the immediate reality of personal experience, if that, if that makes sense. But yes, it is exposing. Like your question was, is it exposing? Look, to be honest, I think the moment I wrestled the most with was has got nothing to do with the book, but it was the night before I'd been summoned to testify at the Royal Commission into aged care and about my dad's experiences in aged care. And I, you know, when, when you participate in a Royal Commission, I don't know if you know this and I didn't know it at the time, but, you know, you make a submission, public submission, um, and then they may or may not call you to actually testify at one of the hearings. And then once they do, you go through months and months and months of interviews with lawyers and barristers and solicitors. They double check and fact check every single thing that the, under the sun before they put you on the stand. And then they issue with a summons. And so there's a point at which it's too late to back out. And you know you are you are you have been summoned to appear um, at the Commonwealth Law Courts or wherever. And so the night before I did that, you know, I um, they'd only sent an email to me that week saying, oh, you know. Um, there may be some media in attendance and it hadn't even dawned on me that that there would be any um, coverage of my testimony at all. And um, and so the night before I did that, I, I really felt um, very anxious about that personal, you know, because that, that, that's real life, you know, that the testimony is real life, that the impact is real life. Um, that was the moment that I was feeling most exposed. And then obviously... Over the few years after that, I'd done so much public advocacy, I kind of decided to set aside my inherently kind of reserved nature and do that public work. So by the time the Jaguar came out, in a way, um, it was the realm that I was most comfortable discussing things in, which is poetry. Um, and I'd already had, you know, such um, scrutiny and participation in the pub public realm about this similar material already that no, I, I don't feel exposed in this book. I feel all of it's sort of out in the open anyway. And and the book in the way is, is the way I'd like to tell these things in, in the perfect word, you know, order rather than all the off the cuff stuff you have to do on the radio or TV or, you know, um, even, even in a court. So yes, I did have my moment of reckoning with exposure and and kind of decided, I mean, that I was willing to participate in that public realm on this issue because it's, you know, important to me. Um, but yeah, no, the book, the book has not been really a source of um, anxiety in that respect, you know, funnily enough, you might think it would, but um, it's been quite moving though. It seems to elicit stories from people who read it. And, um, you know, I think one thing I've learned over the last few years is that the subject matter, I mean, for people who don't know um, this, the story of the book, uh, you know, it, it is it is about dad's Parkinson's and dementia and challenges with that um, into into his death and palliation. Um, this these are not topics that we talk about enormously well. I think in Australia, um, culturally, we're sort of predisposed to focus on youth and newness, and you know, um, look at look at the kind of discourse about older people over the last few years in the pandemic. We're not a culture that has enormous respect for elders, um, goes all the way to treatment of First Nations peoples in this country, the idea of, you know, um, inherited knowledge and ancestral knowledge and and um, the value of elders and older people is not strong in Australian culture. 
And so it stands to reason that we don't have a good language around end of life, ageing, death, dying, dementia, you know, aged care. Um, so, yeah, it seems to have been an interesting, it, it seems to have opened out people's, you know, stories um, or invited them. You know, it's it's amazing with the conversations I've had at writers' festivals and various things over the last few months since the book came out. Um, people do want to talk about this material and, um, yeah, I'm, I'm quite glad that, that that in a way I've shaped the material in, in the form that I want in the book, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, I, I can well understand that. I mean, I won't do this, but I am tempted to derail the entire interview and just, like, talk to you about my dad. <laughs> but um, one of the other things that I'm really interested in in bringing the poems to, to completion is the support of other poets and I'm one of those terrible people who gets a book of poetry and flips the acknowledgements. Um, I wonder about the, I was, I wanted to know more about the kind of support that you got from the poets around you while you were writing some of these poems. I showed most of these poems to nobody. I, you know, and maybe that goes to my privacy. Um, you know, I, well, no, that's not true. You know, um, some of them had been written as part of a doctorate. Um, and so there was, you know, some reading of the poems in that in that regard. But I I am not a poet who workshops my poems at all. I'm not a poet who sends them to any friends to to be read. Which is not to say I don't have dear friends who are writers. It's just not part of my process. Um, I know when a poem is right, and you know, I spend far too long editing them and thinking about them and so forth. And um, I. I it's, it's maybe like a weird answer to your question, but I, I value having poets and other writers in my life for all the ancillary reasons around the writing of work, um, for the sense of peers whose brains you enjoy, whose conversation you enjoy, um, you know, who will discuss the work of others with you, talk about reading, um, talk about ideas. I love all of that. Um, but the, the, the writing of the book itself for me is is a solo act, uh, if if that makes sense. So I'm very grateful, and I'm I'm lucky. I feel in my life I have a lot of writer friends, but I also have friends, you know, from other fields. And it's it's also a relief to not be steeped in the world of Auslit and you know the kind of um, looking sideways that that can go on. And I, I just don't have any time in my life for that at all. So I'm very grateful, you know, to have dear friends who are musicians and artists and curators and journalists and all sorts. And so I would credit them with as much of the support, you know, um, emotionally and just in a friendship sense um, than the writers, I suppose, if that makes sense to you. Mm. Oh, no, I really relate. I really relate. You have to have both kinds, all kinds. Yeah. Um, I might get you to read another from the collection. Another one that stands out to me is this one, Classical Allegory. Sure. This is a little spiky sonnet. Classical allegory. To hell with what you think of me. I've started drinking martinis at three. I wake, I walk, I write, I sleep. I snooze the alarm. I doze, I read. Sometimes I listen to Nina Simone and pity you an inch. Not often. Mostly, I think about who'll be next now you're gone. I stay out extravagantly late. I buy myself a new coat, oysters, peonies. 
I take long baths with a flute of champagne. In baths, I sip whiskey straight. I pet stray cats on stoops. When it's hot, I laze around in French lingerie. Why not? You've gone. The world hasn't stopped. Thank you. I reread that this morning and thought, oh, it's so Dorothy Parker. (laughs) (laughs) That one's just straight out of my life. That one was just a message to to someone. That one is stuff. (laughs) (laughs) So good. I I mean, the book does this amazing shift because the first part um, really does have that uh, very incisive um, looks really directly at your experience with your dad. And then we move into this, um, these poems that are, the word extravagant is really apt. You know, there's, there's luxury and there's indulgence and it's really fun and pleasurable to read. Um, yeah. So I love that juxtaposition very much. Um, one of the things I want to ask you about, this is getting like pretty nerdy here, but I want to ask you about the line and it blows my mind actually that you say that you write your poems solo because I don't know, I'm, I'm going to try to set up this question with a quote from Fishing for Lightning. So you wrote about Robert Adamson and you wrote about his use of the line. Um, and he said, At the end of every line of poetry, we hear a beat of silence before we drop down to the next line, a twinge of anticipation. Like a rest between musical phrases, these beats of silence control the ebb and flow of the poem's music and meaning. Each line is like the rung of a ladder, incrementally revealing a little more of what lies beneath. And to me, one of the primary pleasures of reading the Jaguar is you just have total control of the line. Oh, it's good to know. Thank you. I'm pleased well, to I mean, I think so for whatever that's worth. Um, and I mean, I suppose you've read God knows how many thousand poems by now, but I just wonder how do you learn that? How do you learn to control the line? I think you've got to be alert to the possibilities of language, to the options. You know, this is something I talk to my PhD students about all the time. A poem can have all the same words but probably, you know, there's there's hundreds of options about how you might arrange those words on the page and and where you want the emphasis to lie and where you want just a little bit of uncertainty uncertainty to hang. And um, I mean, for me, the music of the poem is pretty paramount. Um, I started out before I wrote poetry. I played classical piano and. Um, I'm blind as a bat, like I'm, I can't see very well, but I ha- I've always had really good and acute hearing, like sort of slightly too acute at times. You know, I have a, a pretty forensic kind of ear and that that pr- probably has helped with the sense of the line, with the rhythm of the poem, with the, the sense of pace and control. It's all of those things, isn't it? Because really as you kind of... Um, as you shape a poem into lines, you're controlling the reader's attention. You're you're determining, you know, the moment that that rhythm of pause and movement, and um, but you're also kind of controlling the musical patterning of the words and where they where there are kind of these little rests or pauses. And so, probably my my musical back, background may may come in there a little bit in that the sound, the sonic qualities of the poem are very important to me. And I think of the line as also a musical component of the poem. Um, but it's also a compositional one. It's part of the the visual aesthetics and pleasures of the poem are just 
the way that the way the line kind of goes. I don't really know um, how to answer it any better than that. But but it's it's also trial and error. You know, this is the thing. So I say this to a lot of the young poets I work with. You know, when I look at a poem and I think, oh, there's a lot of good stuff in there, but why don't you try it with a long line? You know, you've written it all with equidistant, you know, equal length lines. Why don't you try this or try opening it up or play? Um, and I always think the really exciting thing, I don't know that I'm there in my career, but that moment, say, in Jory Graham's career where she had those, you know, two books, very controlled lines and very kind of relatively short lines, then all of a sudden, you know, her line just blew out to the length the length of the page and she just had this sort of opulent moment of letting go of all of that control. I'm probably still in the controlled kind of um stage of of you know that 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 is what I want to do but I like the idea um of knowing what you're doing and then letting go a little bit and playing with it so maybe that might be something in my future but I do think fundamentally if you've got control of the line you've got control of the poem you know if you don't pay attention to your lines you're not going to end up with a very good poem because Mm -hmm. they're the unit of sense they're the unit of thought they're the unit of breath in the poem you can run against that too but you've got to you've got to sort of have that in mind as you're composing that's the fundamental difference between poetry and prose is that in poems you're also composing in lines um and so it is it, it is very important and i think i mean you mentioned reading that's where i get all my ideas about what works in a line it's not like they've sprung from my head they've come from all of the poets who use lines so differently um, but so magically, you know, I think of a poet like A.R. Ammons, who's a very important poet to me, uses the line in a totally different way to, I don't know, Louise Glick, who's another poet who's important to me, Emily Dickinson, you know, the poets who who shape you um, teach you different things about what a line can do. You know, each poet that I love has taught me something different. And then um, at, at times you use that and play with it. I mean, interestingly, I look at this book and think, God, my lines are getting long. You know, I think they're longer than they, like each book, the line gets longer and maybe it's at the that the territory in this one, you know, intellectually, intellectually and emotionally is a little bit dense, um, that the lines are quite long, but maybe, the, maybe my lines will go somewhere else the next book. I don't know. But I do think it's something you've got to pay attention to and then try not to keep writing the same poem. You know, that's the challenge. Um, try and keep some sense of progression aesthetically, you know, in what you're doing as a poet rather than writing the same book over and over and over again, you know. Um, That's my fear. I don't want to be that kind of poet. So, you know, you've got to have a sense of ambition and change, I think, as well. Mm -hmm. Mm. That's that's really helpful. I feel like I just had a little bit of a a workshop with you there that's going (laughs) to really help me because... God knows a lot of the time I'm just crossing my fingers being like, I think it breaks there. I think. Okay. Um, so you mentioned some of the poets who are important to you just then. And so I want to move into talking about Fishing for Lightning, which is based on 50 essays, 50 columns that you wrote for the Weekend Australian. There are some similarities between that project and what I'm trying to do here, I think, if I can say that, because what the columns do is they just introduce once a week a new poet to readers and it's a fairly um it's not didactic at all it's a fairly sort of take it or leave it kind of introduction and you let people make up their own minds about whether they like this type of poem this type of poetry or not did you have a sense that you were winning people over to poetry in that year 
I I I I do. If that doesn't sound egotistical, I I do because I got the letters. Um, I got the emails. You know, I got an extraordinary volume of correspondence over the year, and I think it probably helped that it was 2020. So it was the year when everyone was locked indoors. There were a lot of lonely people for whom the weekend paper was the punctuating moment. You know, in in the week and a moment of pause and um, you know escape. And so I think I think timing wise, it was opportune that the column happened to start in March of 2020. I mean, it wasn't opportune for me because my dad had just died. So it was sort of very hard for me to get going on those first few columns, um, given the personal circumstances in my life. But even so, over the course of year of the year, I found it um, a positive thing to have to do to pay that amount of attention to someone else's work, um, and. I deliberately wrote the column. I mean, it's not possible to review um, successfully and, you know, fully a new an entire book of poetry each week. I wasn't treating them. They are a form of criticism, but they're not. They're not what I would do if I were writing a book review. They're somewhere in between. I wanted them to be conversational, so they often use the second person. They're speaking directly to the person reading the paper. Um, I was not speaking to poets or to existing readers of poetry really in those columns, but I didn't want to condescend to the audience either. So I, I was hoping that they would open up some of those questions that people do have when they encounter poetry and they're not practised readers of it where they think, well, why has the poet done that or what's what's this about? Um, and like you said, I wanted to leave enough space for readers to then look at the poem. It was very important to me that the poem ran alongside the column. So readers of the column could either read the poem first and then read, you know, the explanation or vice versa if they wanted that little bit of, bit of help. But they ran in tandem, which I thought was nice and important. Um, and then give the reader some, a little bit of help, a little bit of uh, opening opening the door a little bit, um, and then leaving leaving a lot for the reader to kind of explore in the work. So, but yes, I did get the sense that it that it did resonate. Um, I got some beautiful letters and cards and emails. I got a deeply alarming batch of erotic poems from Long Bay Penitentiary. Um, <laughs> I, got, I got some strange mail. Um, I bet. It wasn't all good. There were some alarming missives, um, fortunately sent to my work address. No one had my home address, but... Uh, but, you know, you get you get all sorts, but it was really interesting. Like it was kind of great for me to know that the column was reaching someone who was in jail. You know, their reaction was was not what you might hope. But, you know, it's you just have no idea who actually reads that weekend paper, which is not, um, you know, traditionally poets and poetry people. It's 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 a very diverse kind of group of people who read that. And, um, yeah, it was lovely. I got people sending me their poems, people sending me their interpretations, people picking me up on things that I'd missed in the poem. And, you know, that was very entertaining. And I entered into correspondence with with pretty much everyone who wrote to me. I at least wrote them a reply. And sometimes there'd be a little more tick-tacking backwards and forwards. And it was, it was delightful, you know. It was really lovely. And one of the nicest things about it was uh, early on when it started, I got a letter from a man in Tasmania whose whose son had passed away at a very young age, at the age of 26, um, who had been an aspiring poet, who'd had some mentorship down in Tasmania from various poets in the community down there. And he'd, he wrote to me and said, oh, I'd really appreciate it if you had a look at my son's poetry. And I said, of course. And he sent me 
this beautiful little posthumous kind of volume that he'd had bound himself. And it was so special to me, at you know, in the last column to be able to run one of those poems from yeah. that, that young man. And, mm. um, you know, it, you just, it, it was, it was such a beautiful experience, honestly, like hearing from people who didn't understand poetry, but were interested to learn. I thought there is actually an appetite in people to, to have that door opened. And I think, um, sometimes we can make the mistake of being elitist as poets, you know, because that's a sort of equal and opposite reaction to feeling like culturally we're not, you know, we're not at the centre of the culture. So, but the one thing we have left is our scorn and condescension. <laughs> you, know, you, you know what I mean? It's, yeah, it, yeah. It, it can be a thing where it's, well, you know, well, I'm at least I'm a poet and I, you know, I live in the world of language and, you know, somehow I'm separate and better to people who don't know poetry. And that's, that's the sort of reaction that, you know, some people can have. And, it was nice to be brought into contact with a different reality of people who were, you know, retirees, doctors, nurses, whatever, you know. Um, I heard from all sorts, um, you know, either liking the poem or hating the poem or not understanding it or having a question about why poets were writing this way or um, I did really get a sense that it had an impact. I would have kept doing it, to be honest, but it just about murdered me to turn that out I- every day. Again, my job, you know, different, different time. Like uh, you must have different set of hours because I'm just looking at this, going, this is every single week. Like this is crazy. Yeah, it was pretty intense. Yeah. So I mean, if if I had if I didn't have the day job, I, I think I would still be doing it. I, I did really enjoy it enormously. That's crazy. <laughs> um, just to bring it back around to to end here, because we when we started, we were talking a little bit about the relationship between Australian poetry and poetry globally and I'm particularly interested because I know you've spent a lot of time in the US what your sense is of the relationship between contemporary Australian poetry and contemporary American poetry I I spoke to Pam Brown a couple of months ago and one of the the correctives she sort of offered me was it would be great if we could stop looking to America now we've done a lot of that and maybe we could look at ourselves um but I don't have a sense that that's going to happen anytime soon. I think we're pretty in love with the Americans. Yeah, I mean, I I love American poetry because it was the first poetry I ever read. You know, I went to high school in America, so the first poets I read were American. Those are pretty formative influences, you know, and so my po- my poetics, my probably the tone of my poems and and their approach um, will have will be inflected with with a bit of that, and so I am interested in contemporary American poetry. I have to say, I'm sort of less interested in it in the last decade than I have been um, in the past. I think, you know, there was perhaps slightly more interesting stuff going on ten years ago than there is now, um, and I, I would tend broadly to agree with Pam um, that I think, you know, for for many many years, Australian poetry looked to England and you'd see poets go to the UK, try and get a UK publisher, and that was considered the, you know, the imprimatur of success, as if you had a UK uh, publisher in addition to an Australian one. And lots of Australian poets, you know, moved to the UK either permanently, um, like Peter Porter, or, you know, uh, for, a, for a spell. Um, and I do tend to think that it's that, that centre of gravity has shifted to America. But I agree um, it's a, it's a sign of cultural insecurity to always be looking for affirmation from from another country. Um, I think there are synergies between 
certain schools of poetry in Australia and, and the and the US. Um, but I think there's enough interesting work going on in Australia, and I think fundamentally, it is the duty of Australia. You know, if you are an Australian writer, whatever that means to you. Um, to think about your work in in the context in which it's written rather than to constantly be positioning it as part of, you know, this other um, superior tradition overseas. You know, I think think it is a sign of uh, generally intellectual insecurity. So there there is a kind of, and cultural cringe really is is the term that I'm looking for. It's, It's a form of cultural cringe, just like looking to England was, this idea that culture is something that happens elsewhere, um, I think it's a pity that uh, I do see a lot of poets with a strong inflection of American poetry in in their poetry, and I wish, um, you know, it's nothing wrong with having influences wherever they come from, but, um, you know, not all good things come from America and there's a lot of good work being made in Australia. So, you know, I'm probably in a weird position in that having lived there for so long and that being a tradition in which, you know, I've, I've started my writing life and my reading life really is a serious reader of poetry. Um, there's an element of that present in my work, but I but I also feel I'm much more interested in what's happening in Australia than I am in what's happening in American poetry at present. That's really interesting what you say about it being like 10 years ago, being a little bit more interesting than now. I wish <laughs> I could just have another hour to draw you out on that. Um, uh, let me ask you to read one more poem to take us out. Would that be okay? Oh, that's absolutely fine. I'll read this poem, The Kindest Thing. And this is a true story. When my dad was dying, um, he was in a private hospital close to where my mum lives on the Gold Coast. And the the doctor, the respiratory, he had pneumonia, non-COVID pneumonia. And when the respiratory specialist came in to see my mother and I, and basically to kindly tell us that it was time to not treat dad with antibiotics because he, you know, sh- should be... Uh, left for nature to take its course and be given morphine and and so forth. The doctor was so handsome, it was difficult to listen to him. And mum, who also is susceptible to handsome men, and I, <laughs> both just standing there in total shock. It was like if ER happened in real life. This insanely, obscenely handsome doctor, incongruously, like, you know, trying to talk to you about end of life of a loved one and... Um, <laughs> Yeah, we kind of had to ask him to go through some of it again because it was just such a (laughs) strange, strange, strange shock. Anyway, here we go. The kindest thing. The doctor with an Armani model's jawline is brisk when he tells me the kindest thing is to withhold antibiotics. Pneumonia is the old man's friend, he says. His stare so piercing, I feel compelled by his beauty. He is almost shining with charisma and vitality. This man who coaxes patience towards death like an emerald boa, stretching its pink jaw by inches until the glass frog is entirely inside the snake's head, subsumed into the hypnotic knot of its body, its scales flexing electric green as new leaves, its white lightning bolts rippling and contracting. Or, like the sinister musk blossoming of an orchid mantis, limbs variegated like bolotti beans in flecked rose and cream, swaying like a silken flower to lure the dreaming crickets in. 
The kindest thing is to hand yourself up to death's calling. I know this, but I'm not handing myself up. I'm offering over my father, tenderly unhinging death's jaws until he is swamped with fever, his pupils tracking some invisible thread as he eases into unconsciousness, his eyes bright with the knowledge of one who senses he is being carried away but does not know why or where. just wanted to quickly say thank you to everyone who came along to the reading on the weekend after I said that after I said that it was happening <laughs> I was like oh no what have I done this is a bad idea um, because you know I've gone on the record as saying like readings can be really hard work uh, but it was really actually quite good I thought everybody kept to time I don't know, can you say that about a reading that you read at? It was it was very warm and friendly and I enjoyed it. And the thing I loved most was seeing some of your faces and names there on the Zoom call. Uh, so thank you so much. It really means a lot. Um, I want to try something. I have, I've had this idea in the back of my mind for a couple of months now and I think I'm going to go for it. So... Oh God, I don't know how long ago it was now, like maybe maybe six months ago. Um, on Slee Ricketts, we did, on The Secret Show, we did an Ask Me Anything episode, Matthew, Brian and myself, and it was so fun and I just loved it. And I thought, God, I'd love to do that on my own show. And I thought it might be something nice to do over January. So if you have a question for me, you can ask it. Ask me anything. You have a couple of options. You can, of course, just email me, poetrysayspod at gmail.com. Send through your questions there. But if you want to, I would love to include your voices as well. So if you want to record yourself on your phone or if you have a microphone um, and you want to ask a question that way and send it through to me, then I would love that. You just have to be audible. You don't have to sound professional. I would really love to hear from you. Any question at all, go hard or go home. No Dorothy Dixes, all right? No what's your favorite poet. My favorite poet is Jane Kenyon. You know this. <laughs> um, no softballs. Give me something that you really want to know. I would love to hear from you. I always love to hear from you. I've had some lovely emails over the last uh, couple of weeks and it really makes my day. Hope everything is really, really good where you are. That's it from me.